titled Chain Breakers, where we're wanting to look at things, sin or mindsets or things that will chain us down and entangle us in sinfulness or in desires or just in brokenness that will prevent us from truly living the life that God's created us to live. God has created you and me to live in holy communion with him and to be constantly growing in our faith, constantly growing in holiness so that we are better reflections of him. So in doing that, there are still temptations, there are still sinfulness in even saved people as they fall short from time to time, and there are still chances that Satan can entangle you as a believer in a particular sinfulness, habit, lifestyle, or even mindset. So what we want to do is we want to address these things. Last week, we addressed the, what, the chains of comparison and covetousness or envy. And today, we're going to spice things up a little bit, if I can say that. And we're going to talk about the chains of sexual immorality. So, we're going to discuss that. But before we get into it, we are going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. So this would be a good time if you still have a little one up here and you're wanting them to get out. They can have a chance to run real quick because we're getting into it. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. If you have your Bible, I want to read that one verse. And then uh, we will begin our discussion to look at the chains of sexual immorality. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. If you remember, we read through 1 Peter not that long ago, and we're going to go back to this one verse. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So the NIV reads, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. He goes on to say, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with what? Gentleness or meekness and respect. So here's what I want to do. I want to discuss the topic of sexual morality while also revering the Lord Christ as Lord and doing so in a way that is both gentle and respectful. Not in condescending way or condemning way. Because Jesus was full of both grace and truth, therefore I am to be his follower, I am to be full of grace and truth. Here's the problem. You and I are imperfect. Amen to that. Yeah. You and I are imperfect. Christ is perfect. Therefore, he demonstrated perfectly grace and truth at all times with all people. He demonstrated grace to people that was counter-religious. And he demonstrated truth to people when it was countercultural. So there are times in our life, if we want to truly follow Jesus, we're going to give grace to people that the religious people would, would chastise us for doing so. And then we're going to give truth to people that the culture will condemn us for. So if we want to truly be full of grace and truth, we want to emulate Christ on earth, we must do everything we can to approach all topics, whether that's greed, sexuality, whether it's money or whether it's gossip, whatever the topic is, we address it with both grace and truth. 
All right, we can we discuss briefly next door. If we are full of grace and lack truth, then we will just become tolerant of, affirming of, and accept all things, even in sinfulness. And we will just tell people, oh, God loves you the way you are, and you don't need to change anything. Because that is high grace. We are afraid of the confrontation. We are afraid of preaching the truth of God's word. And then we are lacking truth, but we're just full of full of grace. Or we'll be the exact opposite. If we're not careful, we'll be high truth, low grace to where we're bounding, we're pounding people over the head with the Bible and we're condemning people to hell because they don't agree with the way we live or the way we think. So we have to find our place in this happy medium full of both grace and truth. So as we discuss this, I will go ahead and warn you. I'm going to be looking at my notes a little bit more than usual, simply because there is a lot to cover and I don't want to mess anything up and I don't want to say something incorrectly or mess my words up and then somebody run and and take this and twist it. So I'm going to be referring to these a little bit more than I ever have. But when Peter says to, in our hearts, revere Christ as Lord, but in our hearts, honor the Lord as holy, something I'm going to say again today that I've said over and over is this. Who here claims to be a Christian? You don't have to raise your hand, but just think, are you a Christian? If you claim to be a follower of Christ, we must confess Jesus to be Lord. We must honor him as Lord. And confessing him to be the Lord of our lives mean he means he is the Lord of all our lives. So if we claim to be a Christ follower, born again believer of Jesus Christ, then he must be the Lord of our entire Life. He is the Lord of every aspect of your being. He is the Lord of your money. He is the Lord of your free time. He is the Lord of your friends group. He is to be the Lord of your habits. He is to be the Lord of your desires. He is to be the Lord of your relationship or marriage. He is to be the Lord of every part of your being. We cannot pick and choose where Jesus is Lord at and then where we're going to do things on our own. I was listening to something a long time ago and I remembered it that if you remember a very dark time in Christianity known as the Crusades, the people before they would go with their swords and slaughter people, the soldiers would be baptized beforehand. But they would be baptized, immersed down into the water with their swords sticking out. What they were doing is they were telling Christ, you can have all of me but my sword. You can have all of me but what I do with this. And then they would go and slaughter people. And I wonder just... Maybe if there's one, maybe there's 10, or maybe there's 110 people here today that could be living in the same way. It may not be a physical sword, but is there something that you and I are, or, or continue to hold on to and are not handing over to the Lord? So what we could do is this. We could say, okay, God, you are my God, but you are not going to take my money. You are my God, but I'm not going to give to you my Friday night. You can be my God of anything but my speech. You can be God of everything but my bedroom. You can be God of everything but fill in the blank. So there could be people in this room that are following Christ, but still hold on to sinful habits, sinful desires, and sinful lifestyles that they fail to give to the Lord. But if you and I want to truly grow to be Christ followers and his reflection on the earth, we must confess him to be Lord of our life. Everything we do is to be founded upon him. So one thing I heard was this. To call him Lord means that you are foregoing the decision-making rights in your life. That every decision you make must be founded upon him and his word. 
Every act that you commit must be founded upon him and his word. Do we do this perfectly? Certainly not. You know, and I'll be the first to admit, I'm a preacher, I'm a father, I'm a husband, uh, I'm a follower of Christ, but I still fall short. But I try the best I can, the most I can to build every decision, every action upon the word and the teaching and the character of who God is. That is what it means to consider him, to revere him as Lord in my life. Now, if you have your Bible, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And as we get ready to turn there, as a church, as a minister of the gospel, and just as a man, claiming Christ to be my Lord means that his word trumps mine or yours, if it is in disagreement with, on the topic of sexual immorality. Here's one thing I've come to know. If you and God disagree, you're always wrong. Some of you have been told by your wives far too long, you're always wrong, right? Well, guess what? Same with God. If you and God disagree on anything, guess what? He's right. There's no arguing. There's no debating. He is the ultimate authority of all things. He is the ultimate authority of all truth. Therefore, if you and him disagree on something, and and while I say that, I'm not preaching today to condemn anyone or to try to chastise anyone or try to throw you into the flames. I'm only preaching what... The word of God says. So here's the thing. If you're a little uncomfortable with anything I say today, it's not that you and I have a problem. It's that you and God need to have a discussion. It's that you need to see that you're wrong and God's right. All right? And I'm not doing this by any means to try and point out one particular sin over the other because the foot of the cross, the ground is what? It's level. And each individual sin is in same equal uh, you know, when it, it's, we're all equal when it comes to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. All sin is equally demanding of that sacrifice. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at God's word because I'm not ever going to preach to you my opinions because then we would be in trouble. Okay? Because I can be highly opinionated on a lot of things and I can be wrong. So I say, so I hear from someone, uh, that's really pretty in here a lot. I'm wrong a lot and my opinions are often not correct, but what I want to do is I want to go to 1 Corinthians 6, chapter or verse 9. And then we're going to read verses 9 and 10. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous... Who is that? I was there, right? If you were unrighteous, just raise your hand. And if you aren't raising your hand, you're prideful and a liar. That's unrighteous, all right? So... Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit what? The kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So he is listing multiple sins. But this list is not, I mean, sinfulness is included in these particular sins, but is not limited to just these particular sins. There are so many more that you and I can commit than just these. So one thing that we're going to look at is the sexually immoral, the adulterers, and the men who practice homosexuality. What I want to do today is I want to look at God's design for sexual morality and his sight. 
And then I want to look at four different desires or habits or lifestyles that contradict God's design for sexual morality, that equal sexual immorality. And what we see here in the word sexually immoral in this passage is the Greek word porneia, where we actually find the American English word pornography. In other words, Paul is saying if one's sexual identity, desires, and acts do not align with God's word, they are unrighteous in them. So if your sexual identity, desires, and acts do not align with God's design and God's word, then in those things you are unrighteous. And we will begin to discuss those. I want to just point out that discussions on sex, gender, sexuality are happening more in the world today than maybe ever before in history. It is promoted at at such an unhealthy pace, an unhealthy amount, that we must be aware of what God's Word says in this area. We, as the church, must have these discussions and teach the Word of God on these topics because these topics are wreaking havoc in the world. We, as parents must be prepared to teach our children what God's Word says. Because here's the thing, I've realized this. If I do not prepare myself to teach my girls what it is to be sexually moral in God's sight, the world's going to teach them something. And the world's going to teach them what sexual immorality is, but they're going to teach them that sexual immorality is actually right, promoted, celebrated, and accomplished. And what I will never do is allow the world to dictate the worldview that my girls have. I will push them and I will preach to them and I will pray for them so that God will draw them to himself and that God will provide them a biblical Christ worldview. Because if we do not have conversations around this and we are not aware of what God's word says on these topics, then you and I will be ignorant in these fields. And if we're not careful, we will allow the culture to be what we accept rather than Christ's word. So his word, Christ as Lord, is the foundation. Now I get it when it comes to sexual immorality, sexual morality, gender, identity, transgenderism, LGBTQ community, adultery, all of these different topics that we can discuss in this one field, this one blanket statement, that God's word is not clearly accepted in the world we live. God's word is not taught in the world we live. Building our life upon his word may actually land you in opposition to the world. You may actually find persecution on this particular topic. However, we must never compromise our convictions to be accepted by culture, and we can never be afraid to confront the counterfeit attempts of Satan. And a grave danger that we might see in the world today is that the church as a whole, part of the church as a whole, has adopted a worldly worldview on the topic of sexual morality. And a worldly worldview in this particular topic gives weight to the distortion of God's original design and actually tolerates and accepts and affirms Satan's counterfeit attempts. So here we go. What is the design? Genesis chapter 2, if you have your Bible, you don't have to turn. I wrote it on my paper for you. Genesis chapter 2. All the way back. If, you, if you're looking for that, just go to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said what? It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him to clean the house and to cook the meals and to pick up the socks in the bathroom 
and to put the toilet seat down and to scratch his back. And <laughs> that was my translation. Uh, no, he said, I will make a helper fit for him. Then in just a couple of verses, you read in verses 21 and 22 that God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep. He takes a rib from his side. He cleanses up and, and closes up his side. And then from that rib, he creates woman. And then we actually read that God brought Eve to Adam. So I remember in North Carolina, our pastor said something that was one of the funniest things I've ever heard in a sermon. And I'm going to tell you this now. Where do we get the word woman? I mean, that's a, that's a very controversial word, especially in today's world. But it's actually rooted all the way back to the garden. You see, Adam was out tilling the garden. And he's tilling the garden. And he was looking down and there were some deer running. And, and then the elephants were walking through and the lions and the tigers and the bears, you know. And Oh my. That's what Adam said. Because around the corner of the tree line came Eve. Adam looked and he said, whoa, man, that is good. Whoa, man. And, and that's where we actually get the word woman. It was in Adam. He was just in shock like, whoa, man, very slow down here. So he sees him or he sees her. God brought woman to Adam because that's the God he is. He gives to us what we need when we need it. Then in verse 24, we read, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his what? His wife. And they shall become one flesh. Does that happen immediately? Perfectly? No. It is a lifelong until death do us part that the two of us become one. Because you and your spouse are two completely different people in numerous ways. And you're trying your best to become one flesh. Sometimes, some people are more hard-headed than others, right? Right? Their, and their name are wives. I mean, I mean, there are then wives who help us hard-headed men. But what we have is this lifelong struggle to become one flesh. And Jesus actually affirms this teaching because a lot of people in today's world say, well, that's old school. That's the Old Testament. You know, times have changed. No, Jesus himself affirms this in Matthew 19. That marriage, God's original design for sexual morality, is found in one husband, one wife. Period. So sexually, sexual morality is experienced between a husband and a wife. God established it in the very beginning. Jesus affirmed it in his own walk, in his own ministry. The New Testament, the Old Testament are filled with passages of scripture to affirm this one truth. That sexual morality in God's sight is between a husband and his wife. Period. That's it. Everything outside of that is sexual immorality. So any identity, desire, or act that you and I have outside of this is sin and is morality. So as we understand, God's design for sex and sexual morality is designed for a husband and wife. That's it. Now, let's discuss four different desires or lifestyles or habits that we can see entangling people that draws them away from God's original design and truly holds them and binds them, holds them captive in it, in sexual immorality. So first we're going to start with pornography. 
As I mentioned earlier, sexually immoral in Paul's writing is the word, Greek word porneia, where we get the word pornography. Pornography is the entanglement attempt of Satan to destroy relationships by looking for sexual pleasure outside of a marriage bed and corrupting the hearts and the minds of people. Pornography is that. Pornography is addictive. So if you are one or know someone struggling with pornography, it must be clearly understood that it is sin. It is against God's original design. It is sinful against God. It is sinful against your spouse. It is not to be accepted, affirmed, or uh, tolerated at all. And it must be avoided at all costs. And I mean at all costs. Like, I mean, if you cannot control yourself with your cell phone or with your laptop, you should crush it. You should literally hit it with a hammer until it is broken to remove yourself from the temptation. I mean, if you cannot control yourself and you struggle with pornography and you are entangled to it, then you are enslaved to it and it can destroy your mind and it can destroy your marriage. And it is Satan's attempt to what? Take the two that are becoming one and to take the one and to separate it back into two. Each one of these that we discuss are just Satan's attempt to draw us apart in marriage. So pornography must be understood as sin. It must be understood that it can be addictive and people need to repent of that sin and flee from it. And to avoid it at all times, regardless of the cost. Secondly, I want to discuss adultery. Adultery in the Old Testament was punishable by death. And this is why when Jesus was approached by the religious leaders in John chapter 8, remember the woman caught in the act of adultery? They bring this woman to Jesus and they throw her at his feet. And they say, hey, what do we do? I mean, Mosaic law says we should stone her to death. That was the punishment or the penalty for adultery, to be stoned to death. They all had what in their hands? Stones. So Jesus said, Jesus said, okay, those of you who are without sin, you throw the first stone. But what we see here is that that is the punishment for, for adultery. And Jesus does not affirm her in this sin, but he doesn't alienate her in this sin, right? He, he gives her grace when the religious leaders... That's why Jesus, full of grace and truth, was perfect when we, you and I are imperfect. Because he gives this woman grace when it was counter-religious. But then, in the same way, he preaches truth to the men that were ready to stone her when it was not accepted in their particular culture. So here, adultery is seen as a punishable by death act. And Jesus even said in Matthew chapter 5, that you've heard it this way, you shall not commit adultery. But I say this, everyone who gazes at a woman to lust after her has what? Committed adultery in his heart. Adultery is also experienced when our love and affections are shared with someone else, whether that be the same or opposite sex, that are originally intended for our spouse. And just as stopping pornography, adultery is to be avoided at all times, regardless of what the cost is, to ensure Satan doesn't divide a marriage that is intended to glorify God. Did you know your marriage is to glorify God? It's not a social contract that we sign to just have more fun or we don't just get married so we can have sex and be safe and and not be in sinfulness. Our marriage is to glorify God. And the chains of adultery can only be broken by submitting these desires to the Lord and seeking His forgiveness. Third thing is premarital sex. 
Sex is a gift that is intended for the marriage bed alone between a husband and a wife. Keyword, marriage bed. It is not intended for anyone outside of it. People do it, do it all the time, but it is still sin. So marriage outside of, or sex outside of marriage at any time is to be considered sin. The sex itself is a gift given from God to a husband and a wife to be also a reflection of the intimate love that God has for us. So, sex outside of marriage, regardless of how old you are, how long you've been together, or how married you may act, is still sin. Now, a lot of people believe that premarital sex or people living together before marriage is one of the greatest factors in the divorce rate in America because people are doing marriage things before they're married but they're not bound legally to another to another person therefore there is no consequence or ramifications to just break things off so people live together and they act married they do married people things if you know what i mean and, and then they have no legal bounding so they can just dispose of each other whenever they choose so whenever people get married they've been doing married things for so long that they don't understand the consequences of what a divorce is therefore they can just divorce and we can get married again so what happens is people do married things married lives before they are actually married in the sight of god and when it comes to doing that they just believe that any relationship's like the last one, and we can just dispose of it and move on and do something else, and we can find another, and we can find another. But what happens is it leads to brokenness, it leads to separation, it leads to divorce. So premarital sex, in any way, is sinfulness. Now, I will end our discussion. It's really quiet in here today. <laughs> Quiet. <clears throat> I will lead, or I will end with this topic, the topic of homosexuality. So, in both the Old and the New Testaments, anytime homosexuality is discussed, it is considered to be an abomination to the Lord. It is against God's design, but so are the other three. The other three things that I just discussed are also what against God's design. So, and I am by no means condoning the lifestyle of anyone in the LGBTQ community, but we must be careful in not viewing them as any more sexually immoral as the porn addict, the adulterer, or the premarital sex individuals. Because they too are against God's design. So, the ground is level again at the foot of the cross in every sin, whether it's pornography whether it's adultery, whether it's premarital sex or homosexuality, every sin, each of these is equally demanding of the cross of Christ, not one more than the other, and not three less than one. Jackie Hill Perry once said, homosexuality doesn't send you to hell because heterosexuality doesn't send you to heaven. So, in other words, one specific sin doesn't send people to hell. A failure to submit our lives to the lordship of Jesus and failure to put our faith in Jesus does that. What do I mean by that? I am saved. And I'm going to be in heaven one day forever and ever. And I've got a beautiful 
family and, and I get to preach to them and I get to preach to you and, and God has blessed me, I know that one of these days I'm going to be welcomed into heaven forever and ever. But guess what? Guess what I'm probably going to do today or tomorrow or at least next, next week? Sin. So if my one specific sin was what would send me to hell, then every day I would have to be saved over and over and over again. But by putting my faith and trust in Christ and following him and being born again, I am now saved. I'm saved from the chains of sin. I am saved from the punishment of sin. So what this quote is saying is that one specific sin isn't what sends you or me to hell. It is a failure to repent of our sin and call upon the name of Christ and put our faith in him. Here's why. Because one act of holiness doesn't get you into heaven. If I serve or if I give my 10% or if I serve, you know, to the, give to the needy or feed the poor. So the submission to Christ and faith in him is the only way to heaven. So we also see that God is able to restore the hearts and the desires of a homosexual just as he is the adult, the adulterer or the addict. So one thing we have to understand is that people in the LGBTQ community may say that they are born this way. What gives even more weight to the words of Christ when he told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that in order to inherit the kingdom of God, you and I must be what? Born again. We are all born into sin. You and I are all born into sinfulness. You and I are not taught how to lie or how to steal or how to do some of the sinfulness actions that we do. But guess what? They are all equally in need of the grace of God. They are all equally in need of God's saving grace through who? Christ. So the only way that you and I can see the chains broken in any four of these sins, these desires, these ways of life that are outside of God's ultimate design is to submit our desires to the Lord and see that our desires in life in this sexual morality portion of our life aligns with the design of God. If our desires do not align with God's design and God's word, we are wrong. He is right. But guess what? Sinfulness in any way can be repented of, forgiven, and set free of. So the drunkard the homosexual or the drug addict are all in need of God's grace and are all three different types of sin, but all covered by the same blood of Christ and all carried to the same cross on Calvary and are all offered the same forgiveness at the same weight, which is immeasurable. We cannot measure. There is no measuring scale that God poured out this much blood for murderers or for thieves or for homosexuals. He didn't pour out this much blood for those who just gossip and those who just uh, slander people's names behind their back. He didn't pour out a different amount of blood for those sins or these sins. All of our sinfulness is equal at his cross. Therefore, it was all fully demanding of his full life being put to death. And it was all fully demanding, equally demanding of his blood to be shed. So here's what we have to understand. To close, I will say this, that the tolerance of any form of sexual sin is condemned by God. You and I cannot affirm it and we cannot tolerate it. We cannot celebrate it. We cannot promote it. It is to be condemned by God. We cannot be afraid to 
confront the counterfeit attempts of, of Satan. We must stand firm on the word of the Lord. We must preach the word of the Lord with both grace and truth. But if you have your Bible still open, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says something really important. You remember all of those sins I had read? All of those different evildoers and unrighteous people? All of those people not going to inherit the kingdom of God? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says this. He says, And such were some of you. So you and I were probably in there somewhere, right? I mean, we were in there somewhere. In one way or another, there we were. He says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what this means is this, if you or someone you know struggles with sexual immorality in any of the ways that we discussed, and then, and even more, that does not mean, that does not have to be the way you identify forever. You do not have to identify as sexually immoral forever. But that Christ died for that too. Christ died for sexual immorality in any way as well. What we do is we must lay that immorality at the feet of Christ and seek his forgiveness. What you will find is that God will forgive, he will restore, and he will break the chains of sexual immorality. And especially in today's world where identities are at an all-time high as far as finding our identities, what we must understand is that we must find our identity in Christ alone. Because if we identify in our money, guess what? Just like that it can go. And we will not know who we really are. If we identify in our gender or in our sexual preference or in our, even in our relationships with people, guess what? Those people may breathe their last breath before us and leave us. Therefore, we will be lost and not know who we are. If we identify ourselves in the positions we hold or the power that we have in the workplace, guess what? One of these days that position may be taken, the job may be shut down, and you will not know who you are. If you identify yourself in your youthfulness or your strength, guess what? One of these days you're going to grow old, your back's going to hurt, you're not going to be able to tie your own shoes, therefore you will not know who you are. But if you identify yourself in Christ, then we will constantly know that we are His Son, we are his daughter. Regardless of how immoral we were, how sexually immoral, how prideful, how greedy, regardless of the sinfulness, if we identify ourselves in Christ, we will constantly know that we are his child and that we are to be welcomed into his presence one of these days forever and ever. So what I want to do today is I want to just close with the words of the Apostle Paul in which he said, and such were some of you. We should thank God for those words, meaning that was who I used to be, but I no longer have to be there anymore. And if sexual immorality is where you struggle, and it's any of those four areas that we discussed, please know that my prayer is that you would repent of sin and find your identity in Christ and experience the abundance of life that Jesus came to offer. 
And if you struggle with sexual immorality in any of those ways, I pray that today you would lay those sinfulness, that sinfulness, those desires, those identities, or those actions at the feet of Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sin. That is the only way that the chains of sexual morality can be broken because if you try to fix it on your own, you will be held captive. You might feel separated a little bit, but the chains will constantly be there. The shackles will constantly be upon your wrist and your ankles and you will constantly find yourself falling on your face. If I could plead with you today is to find your identity in Christ and repent of your immorality so that God can draw you and then cultivate in you a heart that hungers for sexual morality designed by him the way he said it thousands and thousands of years ago. Let's pray.